Welcome. This is our first class session for Literature 209 here at the Miskatonic Remote Education Program for the Literature Department. This is Graphical Literature and Society and History, or as is more commonly known among the student populace, the Comics Course. Uh, as our introductory episode, we are going to talk about the general framework that we are going to use as we move forward through the class. Uh, or, as I like to call it, the 100 years. Basically, 100 years of comics and its immediate predecessors. So, we have a few things to get through here before we get started. And the first up is some introductions. My name is Professor Hamby. It is not Dr. Hamby. I am still on my thesis. I am on year 23 of revisions, and we're not going to talk about that anymore. Uh... This is my teaching assistant, Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. Rowan is on loan to us from the visual arts department. I recently discovered something fascinating that apparently people over there actually know how to read. So combining that along with her knowledge of visual arts, uh, hopefully Rowan will contribute some as we look at the visual elements of graphical literature. Uh... We are trying out a new software here at Miskatonic uh, for our remote education program. Apparently, you can leave assignments and questions and other textual content somewhere on the interface. Please do so. Uh, assignments will be checked by Rowan. Questions I will check when I'm drinking whiskey and looking into the dark void of my life and wondering what happened with it which is currently scheduled for Tuesdays between 2 and 5 p.m. Um, not only do we have the visual version of this course with the slideshow, but there's also a pure auditory version, which I understand will be discoverable through many of the podcast platforms such as Apple, Google Play, Spotify, whatnot. That is being handled by the IT department. And as soon as they stop, I don't know, drinking schnapps and whatever else they're doing, they may actually get that set up. Uh, we are currently on version, what is it, six of this recording, Rowan? Yeah. It has been a long day. Uh, and just when the IT department swore they had all the issues worked out for us, the building power went out. The electricians have left. And we are going to call this the cursed episode from here on. So, my department head wants feedback, Dr. Feckett. Um, feel free to hit that like button to show that you appreciate uh, the class. And also, Dr. Feckett wants me to encourage people to support our new esports team here at Miskatonic, the Miskatonic Manticores. Uh, apparently, they are doing something called Competitive Fortnite, uh, where when your avatar dies, is that the correct terminology, Rowan? Yes. Um, you receive an electric shock to the base of your spine. They, this is apparently is in cooperation with the psychology department, which is sponsoring the esports team. Congrats, guys. You probably should have asked about that before you signed up. Go Manticores. Go Manticores. And also, Dr. Feckett wants me to let you know that our literature department's retention is at an all-time high. I personally, this is believe this is because we have embraced distance learning in the time of the pandemic and we are no longer sharing classroom space with ancient languages. But Dr. Feckett assures me that is not the case, so bless his heart. Anyway, let's jump straight into the actual content here. We're going to talk about a hundred years of comics. Now, I don't care what you call them. You can call them comic books, you can call them manga, you can call them BDs, which is a European term. Comics are comics. And if I call Japanese comics manga, it's only out of habit. They're still comics. You can read them in any direction you want. You can look at different art styles. They're comics. And comics are a global thing. Now, in the progression of this course, and indeed today, we're primarily going to talk about American and Japanese comics because there is an interplay between them that's very important in our culture. That does not mean that in the course we are not going to talk about other comics. European comics are very important. Um, a lot of times people talk about them in terms of Franco-Belgium comics. I kind of feel like this does a disservice 
Europe is not homogenous, and its comics traditions are not defined by France and Belgium. There's amazing stuff that's been done all over Europe. And indeed, the world. There are comics from South America, from different parts of Africa, Australia. Uh, I'm particularly fascinated by a tradition of Russian comics that were made during the Soviet era that were very, uh, um, well, I mean, to be blunt, they were subversive and, uh, in fact, illegal. So comics are all over the world. They're probably even in Antarctica. Uh, and in fact, uh, for those of you who knew my previous T.A. Thomas, um, he may be in Antarctica. He's not rejoined us because, and this is kind of strange, he's an accounting major, but he decided to do an interdisciplinary studies program in Antarctica uh, over the break. And apparently the expedition left him behind. So I hope he has some comics to keep him warm uh, by reading them. And penguin fat, presumably, because, yeah, it's cold there. Anyway, so we're going to talk a lot about Japanese and American comics, but I want you to know that the rest of these comics exist out there in the world, and we are going to dive into them occasionally during the course, but if during this first class session we jump all over the world to talk about all the different literary traditions of comics, it's going to be absolute chaos. So we're going to focus on this particular area. Now, before we go forward... I want to go backwards a little bit. Now, I want to dispel a myth, because this class is about setting a framework. And this myth that I want to dispel is given by a bunch of talking head academics and other people who say, oh, well, comics are just another form of sequential art. Well, if we want to look at the origins of sequential art, we can go all the way back, for example, to these Altamira uh, cave paintings in Spain from the Upper Paleolithic era, about 36,000 years ago. If we want to move a little more recent, we can go within just the last few thousand years to Egyptian art, which is clearly uh, progressive. You know, you can see where on the walls they move images forward, they combine it with hieroglyphics for what we would consider textual content, and they tell stories. Now, does this mean they are comics? No. Comics are sequential art, but sequential art are not comics. This is like saying that the novel is actually just another word for the first random letters that were ever carved into stone somewhere. They're distinct things. The medium and the media cannot be entirely separated. When they chose what kind of stories to tell, and they chose the mechanics of telling the stories on those cave walls, they were limited by the kind of art they could do, the medium, how people would look at them, maybe by firelight, Similarly, the Egyptians used things like the curvature and shifting of the walls to create elements. You can see here where this one figure who's seated is pointing, and they're using the curvature of a wall to create an illusion of him directly facing the other in an almost three-dimensional way. They are using the medium to help tell the story. Comic books are the same. Once they were printed on paper and you could flip pages and they were serialized, all of this affected how stories were told. So, are comic books sequential art? Yes. Are they just another word for sequential art? No. Now, I do want to go before comics a little bit, because I do want to talk about how there is a tradition that leads up to comics. Here, I'm looking at yukioi, which is a tradition of Japanese woodblocks, uh, this particular one is Animals Taking Shelter from the Rain by Kuniyoshi. I particularly like Kuniyoshi. I like his colors. I like the sense of movement. Uh, Yukoyoi often used animal-headed people as symbols, and the animals had particular symbolism in that the Japanese uh, viewers and readers knew. And you can see text and images combined here. These also were sequential. Multiple woodblock prints would be made with variations to tell a story as things changed. This was not unique to Japan, either. Uh, in Europe, they were doing prints. I don't know if this particular one was a woodblock print originally or not. Gesundheit Rowan. Sorry. That's fine. Uh, but certainly woodblock prints were done, and this print was The Plum Pudding in Danger by James Gilroy. Gilray. Uh, it features George V of England and Emperor Napoleon of France carving up the known world between their respective empires. This one has been heavily copied, modified, redone, 
to fit whatever the current needs of satire are. And we see in both these traditions satire, humor, sequential storytelling. Now, The Plum Pudding in Danger was a single one, not part of a series, but wood prints in series were fairly common. Now, these woodblock prints would have been things collected by those with means, the upper middle class, the nobility, those with money. Um, but as we move into the 19th century, we move into comics for the masses. Now, one of the big shifts was newspapers. And here we see a cartoon from a newspaper, Blind Man's Bluff, wherein a cop is wandering around Whitechapel. He's blindfolded, and these hoodlums are just moving around him unseen. This was done to satirize the inefficiency of the police during the Jack the Ripper murders. But what's important here uh, isn't the incompetency of the police, although if we get around to doing Alan Moore's From Hell in the series, uh, we will definitely talk about that. But what's important is this was popular. New it is hard to communicate to people in this day and age how powerful newspapers were. Um, this is pre-radio, pre-TV, pre-internet, and newspapers could come out in some cities three times a day, a morning, an afternoon, and an evening. This was the source of news for people. It was how people communicated through ads. Uh, it was how people learned about things. It was a source of analysis in the editorial pages. Different newspapers would come out with different political slants, and some were more cheap than others, hence the idea of yellow newspapers. They had a yellow tint to them, and yellow journalism, meaning something that was heavily slanted, because they might be cheap, put out quickly, and you might have a conservative newspaper, a liberal newspaper, a socialist newspaper, all these things. And these, in this intense competition, in this place where the newspapers played such a central role to people's li lives, there was money. There was a lot of money to be made. If people were buying all these papers every day because they were so important, there was a ton of money to be made. And to some people, the distinguishing factor of what newspaper they might buy would be this kind of thing, the blind man's bluff. Which one gave them a good laugh for the day? Now, this meant that over time, newspapers said, we want more of these things, and we want more comics that entertain people because they help sell our papers and distinguish them. Let's fast forward a little bit, uh, just a few years, really, because from, say, 1888 to 1895, The Yellow Kid by Richard Altkult. Uh, it was the first newspaper strip, and they took the idea of that single panel and made sequential panels out of it combine text and images to make humorous stories. So we see this evolution of the comic. And again, huge. If comics were big in selling papers, newspaper comic strips became just over the moon important. Uh, the comic strip makers were rock stars of their days, and newspapers fought over who employed them for their syndications. Now, because they were so important... That meant diversity. Over the years, we got everything from Spider-Man comic strips to humor and sort of philosophy, like Calvin and Hobbes, to political satire like Doonesbury, which was often on the editorial pages of newspapers by Gary Trudeau. And intermixed with this diversity and popularity, we, of course, ended up with people wanting collections of them. So here we have, from 1908, by Windsor McKay, a Little Nemo hardback collection that would have been bought in bookstores. And more recently, I just mentioned Calvin and Hobbes a moment ago, but a four-volume hardback slipcase edition of Calvin and Hobbes uh, that you could probably still buy on Amazon today. In fact, you can buy Little Nemo collections today. So... It's not surprising that since these comic strips were well-loved that people wanted them collected. But it is an interesting turning point because it puts in people's minds this idea of collecting comic strips. Now, these were valuable ones, but it didn't take very long for people to start saying, you know what, maybe, just maybe, we should do some freebies. 
And these freebies would have been the immediate predecessor to comics. Unlike these nice big hardbound editions, they would have been really cheap, simple giveaways. Um, now those simple giveaways, we don't know where the first ones were and how long they happened, but they probably were in convenient, well not convenient, uh, they were probably given away to say children while parents were shopping for appliances and things like that. But after a while, somebody said, let's take that format, let's take those little cheap bound collections of comic strips and let's put some new material in it and instead of it being a free giveaway at stores, let's charge 10 cents for it. And this is often considered the first true comic book, Famous Funnies in 1933. It had new content as well as a bunch of rerun stuff. Now this is not a lot, this is not much like you would consider a modern comic. It didn't look like it. Yes, it had comics. It had, as its cover says, games, puzzles, magic. It might have had uh, articles in it. It might have had weird random educational information, editorials, uh, comic strips that had nothing to do with each other. It would have looked more like a magazine in a lot of ways. And But one of the critical things is not only did it have new material, but unlike those previous giveaways, it was serialized. You see that number one on the cover. There was an expectation you'd pick it up each month like a magazine. Now, while we're talking about magazines, it's important that we talk about the pulps. Now, the pulps were magazines that were running parallel to comics and predated them. Detective, com uh, Detective magazines, spicy adventure stories, The Shadow. You see some characters that moved from pulp magazines to comics and some immediate predecessors. It is not hard to draw a line from characters like The Shadow to vigilante superheroes. But these pulp magazines were racy. Now, some of them were like the spicy adventure stories here and racy by modern standards. You know, the girl is getting her shirt torn up, but the places that would most offend conservative viewers are still covered. Um, of course, the African uh, tribal figure is perhaps a little racist there. Um, especially with how they're probably portrayed in the story. But that was the nature of the times, unfortunately. Uh, but there were many pulp magazines that went beyond sexy. Now, the genres were often science fiction, fantasy, noir, horror, true crime, mystery. But especially in the racier ones, you might open them up to find full nude pictorials. So they also covered the genre of girly magazines of the day. And the violence and the gore and the depravity in them, they, they fought with each other to push the limits as far as they could. And it hit the point where at one point, um, New York City was seen as cleaning itself up. It was going beyond the days of Tammany Hall and the rampant corruption. And they hired a mayor named LaGuardia, or elected him, however you want to call it. And one of LaGuardia's platforms was not just clearing out corruption of the government, but corruption of the city. And that meant cleaning up these pulp magazines that were being largely produced and published in New York City. Now, one of the publishers of these pulp magazines was a guy who looked around at comics and said, you know, if I have to get out of pulps or I'm going to end up in jail, maybe I can jump onto this comics bandwagon. So that's where things like Detective Comics came in. So he moved away from the raciness. He certainly wasn't in comic books putting out nude pictorials of girls. But he said, I can take some of those same genres I did in pulp, like Detective Magazine can become a Detective Comics. And you see that same content, you know, cops chase down bank robbers and that kind of thing. And he said to himself, because this was successful, I want a whole line of these. I want adventure comics. I want mystery comics. And you know what? Maybe I should do an action comics. And he went forward with that, with action stories. And famously, the content creators for action comics, number one, did not come through with their content on time for the cover story. And somebody else convinced him to use a story some kids had sent in, and he ended up putting it on the cover. And that is how Superman came into existence. Now, again, this did 
on the cover, it looks a lot like what you think of as a modern comic. You know, you have a big title and an action scene, and you have Superman as a central character. Once you opened it up, it was actually quite different. Uh, it was still more like a magazine in a lot of ways. Superman was only one of multiple stories in there, and there might have been, you know, interstitial bits with maybe a random comic strip or a Ripley's Believe It or Not feature or any number of other things. But when Action Comics number one came out in June 1939 and Superman became the first superhero, the first spandex-wearing geek, geek being a term taken from uh, circus traditions where geeks were the very tight spandex-wearing trapeze act artists, this changed everything. It was hugely popular. And it was so popular, in fact, that soon... Detective Comics became Detective Comics featuring Batman. They wanted to group these characters together, like Superman, Batman, and Robin, along with uh, Zatara, who also debuted in Action Comics number one, and other superheroes into things like World's Best Comics. But this did not mean that everything turned on a dime. There were other comics still being made. True Crime Comics, which you commented on an earlier recording that had to be trashed, Rowan, you were surprised yeah. about. Uh, now, True Crime is a very popular on podcasts and Netflix and other forums right now. And people have always been fascinated by this, of course. Now, also horror was popular. Again, a genre that came over from the pulps. And EC Comics, with Tales from the Crypt and other gruesome titles, become very important in the history of comics. Now... Humor did not go away. Titles like Rusty, America's Funniest Female were still around. And even if comics weren't that racy stuff that the pulps did, there were still artists here and there that liked to draw an attractive female. Although, to be fair, some of these Golden Age artists, and the Golden Age of comics is often considered to have started with Action Comics number one, um, some of them could have used some anatomy lessons. Art has definitely improved in comics over the years. And you saw a big growth in titles like Heartthrobs here, which were romance comics oriented towards young female readers. And it was really the one genre that was marketed towards girls. Now, there is kind of a myth. There is a myth that comics were only read by kids. Actually, comics were heavily read by adult men also. And many of these things, like the horror comics, the true crime, superhero comics, comedy comics were heavily distributed to soldiers in World War II and heavily read there. Um, and I'm willing to bet that there were plenty of girls that read those comics too. I just can't imagine those themes. And there were a number of early female superheroes, although not as prevalent as the male ones, I admit. Uh, now we're going to jump over to Japan. Now, as we talk about Japan, I'm going to talk about Japan up until about the 1980s. And I'm not going to go a whole lot into why, but I want to talk about the early, the first 40 or so years of Japanese comics parallel to the U.S. ones. And then I'm going to trail off on the Japanese comics a little bit to focus on America. And that's because in a future class session, we're going to come back and really focus on the growth of what we call modern manga in more depth. Because I think it does need a discussion in its own separate right. Anyway, in the 1940s, World War II had ended. Uh, the United States was occupying Japan. Uh, the previous political regime was now out of power. Uh, another political regime, which was more friendly to the West, was being reinstated into power. And trade was opening back up. And they were bringing in American comics and reading them. And they said, hey, let's copy this. Now... Going all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century, Japan had had uh, magazines oriented towards young male readers and young female readers, respectively shonen for boys and shoujo for girls. But at this point, those things had not become translated into manga yet. Manga was just manga and there wasn't a whole lot of it. And of course, the first manga was very similar to the first American comics, in that they were taking comic strips and basically collecting them which is what Famous Funnies did. And the first one in Japan was by a female artist and writer. The title was Suzei-san, published in 1946, and had previously existed as comic strips. And it was similar to American uh, works like Cats and Jammer Kids 
and things like that, and that it was a very slice of life with funny elements. Now, if we jump back to the U.S. in the 1950s, people started asking, are comic books dying? Sales were way down, and now people talk about a cyclical uh, nature of the market as generations associated with comics grow up, leave them, new readers come in. Uh, there's lots of ongoing discussions about this. But at the time, it was complicated also by the publication of a book called Seduction of the Innocent by Frederick Wortham. Uh, we will go more into this in a future class session, but this book was claptrap. It was garbage. It was BS. Uh, we now know that he made up lots of stuff in this book. But at the time, there was a large focus in American society, and there's a debate about how much of it was real versus perceived, but a big concern about juvenile delinquency. So much so that Congress had congressional hearings on it in New York City in 1954, multiple ones. And this book took center stage in some ways because it gave them an answer. It gave them something to focus on. And they could say, comics are the problem. And the result was the comic book industry wanted to get ahead of this. And they created something called the Comics Code Authority. It was basically an independent entity that was funded by the comic book companies by paying them to review their comics and say whether or not it violated these moral and ethical guidelines. And it made the government happy. Now, this was a one-two punch because, one, sales were already down in a lot of areas, but one a few areas that they weren't suffering in. Superhero sales were in the toilet. But things like horror comics were doing fine. But now, suddenly, what was going to happen was they were going to have their financials taken out from under them. Because the way that comic books were sold was that they were sold at newspaper stands, drug stores, um, supermarkets, things like that. Now, America was exploding into the suburbs at the time. And for a whole generation of young comic book readers, the places to get comic books were not dedicated reading establishments. They were places like drugstores and grocery stores and uh, other places uh, that their parents might take them to or they might be able to walk to. Now, these places were supplied by distributors who didn't really care that much about comics. They were just another thing to sell and put on spinner racks or in the magazine racks. And one of the things that they found convenient was to say, okay, well, we're only going to buy stuff that's approved by the comic books code, and that way we know we're not going to have grief when we sell it to the drugstores and stuff. And the drugstores and all these people, they didn't say, we want 10 new Batmans, 10 new Supermans. They just said, hey, we're low. Send us 100 new issues of the new stuff. And it just got put out there. And the distributors worried about divvying it up. So it was kind of random in a way. And this affected how the stories were written and all that, which will become important in a little bit. But it also meant that if you were somebody like EC Comics and your stuff was not going to get approved, you were in trouble. So this was a one-two punch that killed a bunch of comic book companies. Uh, now, one genre that did survive and do well was young romance. Uh, now, during this time period, a lot of comic book artists did one of two things. They either left the comic book field, in which case the explosion of illustration and advertising was a refugee for some of them, or they took whatever work they could get. And romance was a genre that was still employing comic book artists, so a number of them went there. Now, I don't want to overstate the failure of superhero comics. There were superhero comics that were still popular and being published, but they were relatively far and few in between. If you were Superman, you could still sell comics. If you were Batman, you could still sell comics. If you were Wonder Woman, you could still sell comics. If you were, you know, Green Lantern or Hawkman, you probably weren't selling comics. Now, this is one of your assignments. I want you to guess who the artist is that did this issue. Now, if you want reference points for the art, I recommend you look at some World War II era classic Atlas comics. You can look at some 60s era Marvel comics. 
Um, but take a guess who the artist is and drop it in the feedback form. No points for if you get it wrong, but you definitely get some bonus points if you get it right. I will say it's an artist that's extremely well known and highly regarded in the history of comics. Okay. At the 19, at the same time in the 1950s in Japan, uh, in many ways, the first Japanese superhero was born, Astro Boy, published in 1951 by Osama Tezuka. Osama Tezuka becomes a very important name in the history of comics. He pushed the boundaries later on with works like his Phoenix series, which was his magnum opus that he never finished. Um, Princess Knight introduced a character that's complicated for female Japanese readers because in many ways she broke genre definitions, but also kind of wimped out. Anyway, the 50s is also when shonen and shoujo really grew as manga genres. So we had manga being pushed for boys, shonen, and girls, shoujo. And these had all the same genres that you would expect in Western comics, action, horror, supernatural, although one big difference in shonen is that while sports comics were never huge in the U.S., they became very big in Japan and continue to be to this day. Now, as we get into the 1950s, uh, we enter what people call the Silver Age of comics, 1956 to 1970. Now, I mentioned briefly earlier that starting with Superman was considered the Golden Age. I don't like these terms, Golden, Silver Age, whatever, but I'm using them here because they're a common point of reference that is commonly used by people who talk about comics. It's borrowed from Greek mythology, with people actually made out of gold, silver, and whatever, with the idea that things get worse over time. I think that is obviously garbage and a bad message to communicate here. It also is really exclusive to American comics. It does not communicate the landmarks and transitions of comics in other parts of the world. So, when we talk about these terms, I think it's fine to use them, but we do need to say the Silver Age of American comics, the Golden Age of American comics, and we can debate their uh, veracity, but I do think this is an important landmark time to note because in 1956, the second Flash debuted. The original Flash was named Jay Garrick. He had a different costume, a different background, a different source of his powers, and this one was a new one, Barry Allen, and it reintroduced the Flash to a new generation of readers. And readers loved it. It was a big deal. So I mentioned earlier that Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman had been continuously published, but the Flash had not. Nobody had seen him for a while. And this made the editors at DC sit up and go, you know what, let's make a new Green Lantern. Let's make a new Hawkman, a new Adam. And quickly, superheroes re-exploded into comics. Heroes were cool again. Now, this doesn't mean that there weren't other heroes being published. Captain Marvel Adventures, for example, was still being published by Fawcett Comics. Um, he managed to be one of the few hero titles that survived the crash in the 1950s, uh, at least for a little while. But Fawcett did eventually shut down and get bought out by DC, which is an interesting story in its own right. And we will cover that in a class session where we talk about the history of copywriting comics. Now, as we move into the 1960s, we see probably the single biggest thing for a lot of people was the publication of Fantastic Four number one. Now, there had been a whole host of companies publishing comics uh, by a guy named Goodwin. He published them under different names for tax reasons and liability purposes and all this stuff. But he had an, a writer come in named Stan Lee, not his real name, because he, he didn't want to be associated with comics initially, because he wanted to be a novelist. So he, so he wrote a Stan Lee, and he created the Fantastic Four. And it was a huge success, and it was very different from what other comics were doing with superheroes, because... In the first issue, they didn't even wear costumes, and they argued with each other, and they acted kind of like real people if they got powers, instead of paragons of virtue, like they did over at DCC, which was intentional on DC's part. And this was probably influenced by Lee wanting to be a novelist and wanting to do something that he felt had a greater sense of veritas. 
And so this exploded, and soon Goodwin consolidated his companies into Marvel Comics. And where, through the 1950s, DC had really been the only major comics publisher left. The others were struggling. Many of them closed shop, and in fact, DC bought out their intellectual properties. Now, suddenly, we had a big two, and Marvel was competing with DC for popularity on the spinner racks. Now, during this time, other comics existed, but they really did take a back seat. Uh, there were comics being done towards little kids, like Spooky, Archie, um, oh god, I'm trying to think, Little Red Devil, Casper the Friendly Ghost, Wendy the Little Witch, all kinds of stuff like that. And then you had a few of those sort of pulp-oriented comics still around, like G.I. Combat, which was being published by DC, but you weren't seeing true crime comics anymore. You weren't seeing, you know, if something was called Adventure Comics, it had superheroes or things that looked like superheroes in them. Uh, there was still a pulp influence left with characters like Adam Strange, but Adam Strange would have been at home in a pulp, but he was in a shared universe with Superman and Green Lantern, which changed and made him more superhero than pulp. You also had, during the 60s, the growth of counterculture comics. Now, these are a big deal. Now, I mentioned previously that comics were being sold largely through distributors that weren't going to sell anything without the Comics Code Authority. Now, you can see here, All News App Comics number one, and there's a little thing that, if you just glance at it, looks like a Comics Code Authority uh, symbol, but if you look closely, it's not. It's a parody of it. During this time, these counterculture comics were starting to be sold through record stores, head shops, which were sources of drug paraphernalia, and all kinds of so-called counterculture places. Now, notice I don't say hippie. A lot of people associate counterculture in the 60s with the hippie movement. It was far more complicated by, than that, and it's very dangerous to oversimplify the past. Uh, but these counterculture comics become important because they are a way that people began saying there's other stories to tell than superheroes and things derived from the pulps and things for little kids. There is a market for adult comics and adult humor. And yes, there was a good bit of raunchiness in some of them. Uh, Zap Comics was done by a guy named Robert Crumb. There's some excellent documentaries out there about him, and he's certainly done some pretty raunchy stuff. He also has some serious issues with women, but that's a whole other story. Um... As we head into the 1960s, in Japan, manga is exploding. Now, manga's been around a while, but now they're not only importing Western superhero comics, but they're making them their own. They had their own version of Batman done by Hiro Kagawa. Uh, and this isn't just a translation of Western Batman comics. It's his own stories with a Japanese viewpoint. They also did this with Spider-Man and others. But also, all their new iconic Japanese properties were coming in, like the humor action adventure of Lupin the Third, where they often hid the twist from the viewer till the end. A sort of James Bondish, thuggish figure, uh, uh, anti hero named Golgo 13. And of course, one of my favorite genres of Japanese manga, which is the giant robot, and of anime as well. Then as we head towards the 1970s in America, we see the birth of the Bronze Age. And I personally associate the birth of the Bronze Age with Will Eisner's A Contract with God. Many people consider this the first graphic novel. And I think that's a fair statement, uh, although it definitely has its predecessors. Now, Will Eisner is best known for a pulp character named the Spirit. But A Contract with God not only... Uh, was a graphic novel, and that was a new idea. But it introduced very literary ideas of man versus the universe and the introspection and powerlessness of the characters. And it really was ideas that you'd find in a novel in a graphic format. And that was a pretty radical thing in a genre that had been up till now except for those 60s counterculture comics, which were more snark and satire, was a medium pretty dominated by superheroes and pulp ideas. 
And part of this expansion of content meant that we began having a college market. We had older readers that were interested in more more serious, for lack of a better word, ideas. And one of the iconic ones was the Black Panther. Now, uh, Jungle Action was a title that Marvel started republishing in the 70s with reprints of old, to be honest, pretty racist you know, stories set in Africa and the like. And writers came along and said, you know, we can do better than this. This is the 60s. It's the age of uh, the Black Power movement, of the, you know, of recognizing racial inequality in America. Why are we reprinting this old racist stuff? And so they decided to start taking uh, a figure named the Black Panther who had been uh, originally introduced in Fantastic Four and had broken black stereotypes as a character even then. And they wrote him with a lot more depth until the point here where we see issue 19 where he's fighting the Ku Klux Klan in America jungle action is pushed up to the top and Black Panther dominates the title and through traditional markets such as spinner racks and drugstores this was not selling in fact this was not accepted by places in the south who would not carry it but it was beginning to be carried in bookstores and specialty stores uh, all across the country that college kids were going to because they liked action. Um, they liked, you know, superheroes, but they wanted more substance than just good guy beats up bad guy. And seeing some of their world mirrored mattered to them. Now, when we talk about these specialty stores, actual comic book stores and comic book book hybrid stores, that's where this guy named Phil Soling comes in. Uh, now, he is critical to creating something called the direct market. The direct market was basically his brainchild, his baby, his invention. And what it was, was back then, let's say you were a bookstore or you were trying to actually establish your own comic book store and you wanted to buy from Marvel and DC, but you also wanted to buy, say, counterculture comics from Aspen Press and you wanted to buy all this other stuff. Well, you weren't going to have comics sold to you by drugstore distributors who handled that stuff. So you were going to have to write to all those different comic book publishers individually, which meant DC had accountants just handling invoices and work from hundreds of stores across the country. It was a nightmare. Phil Soling said, we're going to create our own comic book distributors and we're going to call it the direct market. DC, my direct, my, this distributor over here, you can just send them 5,000 copies of the new Superman. They'll worry about splitting it up to the comic book stores. Comic book stores, you don't have to write to all the different publishers. You just write to your distributor and they'll sell to you. Maybe you'll have to write to two or three distributors, but it'll be much easier than all the different companies. And this was a huge boon to everybody. And it enabled stores out there to start carrying independent comics, like ElfQuest from Warp Graphics. Now, later, Marvel Comics would actually publish sort of sanitized versions of ElfQuest. But you could buy it in an independent store. And notice, no Comics Code Authority on this. No, because it had boobies. And it had people who obviously had slept together. And it had implications of gay relationships. Well, technically not gay. All the Wolf Riders would buy. And I do mean all of them. And if you think that is just reading subtext, it was pretty obvious, and the pennies confirmed it later. They just didn't have our ideas about those sexual mores. Now, as we move into the 1970s in Japan, women exploded into the manga market. Now, mostly they were writing shoujo, I admit. Mostly they were taking over shoujo and writing women's stories for themselves, which is a wonderful thing. But it wasn't exclusive. And the woman pictured here is Rumiko Takahashi, and she broke boundaries. I mean, yes, she wrote what was technically shonen, uh, boys for comics, uh, comics for boys, uh, with titles like uh, Ranma Niben Noichi, Yurusei Yatsura, and so on. Later, she'd write horror and all kinds of other things. Her Mermaid Forest, which is hard to find now, is excellent horror manga. 
but in some ways, she was so popular that she broke the definitions. I mean, Yurusei Yatsura, when its anime was made, was so popular that families would gather around to watch it each week. So I wanted to point her out especially. She's just an amazing talent. Um, but she was definitely not writing shoujo. Women were taking over shoujo. And there was something really important about that that I want to point out that's thematically different between so-called romance comics and manga and Western romance comics. When we look back at Western romance comics like Heartthrob, the theme was very much the importance of the nuclear family unit. The goal of a girl was to get married and have a family generally, especially by the 50s when the enforcement of this sort of myth of American homogeneity started. Uh, uh, Post-World War II, we really had a myth in America where white suburban nuclear families were the only accepted image in media, and everybody else was kind of, by extension, un-American, which is awful. Uh, and the romance comics for girls were really centered around an idea of, uh, are things going to work out with this boy? Is he going to win the girl's heart? It was not just plot. It was theme, too. The theme was the establishment of the norm. Uh, meanwhile, in Japan, girls' comics were about... The plots were very similar in a lot of ways. You know, are things going to work out with the boy? Are things going to work out in the relationship? But that was the plot. That wasn't the theme. The theme was about the girl's mind, her identity, and what she eventually realized was what she really wanted. This epiphany about herself made them very different. And it's a theme you see especially strong as you move forward into modern Yuri manga with girls. And it has it made them very diverse and resilient to time in a way that Western romance comics are not, which are dead now, for all intents and purposes. While uh, Japanese romance comics and Yuri, uh, both heterosexual and uh, lesbian or whatever else, uh, are very much alive. Yuri really isn't technically lesbian. It's girl love, which is a little more complicated. Um, but we'll get into that in, in its own class session, which I think is worth it. I also want to talk about Sinan exploding. Now, Sinan is comics oriented towards older readers. Now, I'm not saying you hit 22 and magically would no longer read shoujo anymore. That's not true. But Sinan did have more mature themes. And what I'm picturing here is a series called Lone Wolf and Cub, which was insanely influential, not just in Japanese comics, but Western comics as well. And if we ever do a session dedicated to Frank Miller, we're going to have to talk about the influence of Lone Wolf and Cub on him substantially. Now, as we get to the 1980s in the U.S., we have a lot to cover, so I'm going to try to do some of this quickly. We're going to start with crossovers. Uh, basically, Marvel and DC decided that Teenage children were an endless font of money. And this was not the first crossover, but it was perhaps the, the most successful early one, uh, Marvel's Secret Wars. And you see featured on the cover here characters from a bunch of the big superhero titles at the time. And basically what happened was, let's say we have, okay, uh, Avengers, uh, Captain America, X-Men, Fantastic Four... Hulk, uh, Spider-Man, Iron Man. So those were all separate titles at the time. And the storyline would start, and in each of those titles, the story started. Then the first issue would come out. Then the next issue of all those titles happened with more tie-in than the second issue of the series. So if you were only buying two of those titles, you felt a certain degree of pressure to buy all the titles plus the limited series to keep up with the whole story. And maybe you couldn't do all of them, but maybe you could squeeze out the money for a couple more. And this was insanely successful. And it hit a point where, I believe at one point, Marvel was attempting to do three of these major crossovers a year. It, it's painful. Uh, there was also the rebooting. DC did the first major rebooting. And in our next class session, we're going to talk about comics as mythology when we talk about Wonder Woman here in Pride Month. 
And, but this was the point where they decided to reboot things to try to create a consistent continuity. And I do want to point out down at the bottom those names. Marv Wolfman, George Perez, uh, Dick Giordano, uh, Giordano. Notice before, as we've shown all these comic book covers, they did not have creators' names on them. And that's going to be important in a second. Now, why is continuity suddenly important? Now, remember I talked back to those spinner racks and how the stores didn't control what they got. People didn't know what was going to be there when they went to buy comics. This made comics very episodic. Now, by the time we moved into the 70s, we had those comic book stores. Now, one of the things comic book stores, of course, did was they bought enough to put on the shelves. They bought a little extra for back stock, which became extremely profitable. And they wanted to know what they were going to sell, so they encouraged people coming in to get what they called pull lists. And they would put together a pull box for them. And I did this as a kid. You went to a comic book store, and you filled out a list, and that let them know how much they were guaranteed to sell, and then they could make projections off that. It's just good business practice. But it also meant that readers got every title they wanted. You got Superman every month. You didn't have to worry about it not being sent to the drugstore or it being gone off the spinner rack when you got there and maybe your friend didn't have it. You got Legion of Superheroes, Firestorm, Teen Titans, whatever it was, every month. If you somehow missed an issue, you might be able to go get it in back stock so you could pick up a new series. That meant people were looking for continuity and we now had hit a generation of writers that were accustomed to reading things every month. And if things didn't make sense... Well, back in the 50s, Superman one issue could contradict an issue from four months ago, and nobody even noticed or cared. Now people noticed and cared. And in fact, you found little uh, text boxes that would often point out continuity issues to explain them to people. But rebooting caused its own problems. And over the years, people have said, well, this isn't quite the version of this mythology I want, so we're going to reboot again and again and again. I think DC's on about a rebooting the multiverse every three years right at this point. And it causes some interesting issues from uh, comics writing. Globalization also begins. Now, we haven't really talked about European comics a lot here, but amazing stuff was being done in Europe. Amazing. And one of the main ways that American readers were getting this was through Heavy Metal Magazine, which reprinted uh, a lot of European content. Now, Heavy Metal was not sold to kids. There's no Comics Code Authority. It was done in a magazine format. still is today. Uh, and often sold in a section apart from the other comics content in comic book stores. I picked it up religiously. Some stores put a, you know, adults-only sign over it, which is like putting giant neon arrows that says, Kids, look here. And it was amazing. It was this content being published in it was nothing like in American comics and hugely influential. Uh, it also is the age of postmodernism in comics, with especially the publication of Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' Watchmen. Uh, Watchmen is still popular today. It's still selling new trade paperbacks. HBO is still doing uh, content based on it. And it basically took an altered version of the Justice League, because DC wouldn't let him use the actual Justice League for this, uh, to tell a very modern story of people with superpowers who are people. It, and it's important because not just are comics comics anymore, but comics become... Uh, whoops. I'm messing up my own slides. This is where we officially blame the Miskatonic University IT department. Comics aren't just... Uh, in How should I say this, Rowan? You've listened to my past presentations on this. I did? See, my own TA doesn't listen to me. Uh, comics are their own inspiration at this point. Comics aren't just attempting to mirror stories in the world or create a pure fantasy mythology. Comics are looking back on the history of comics and commenting on themselves, which is a weird loop that's caused some issues with modern comics. 
I just tested your Rowan and you failed. That's fine. Ay vey. Um, I also want to mention Diamond Comics and the sort of creators as rock stars. Notice I mentioned earlier on that cover of Crisis on Infinite Earths, they had George Perez and Marv Wolfman's names. Creators began selling comics. People began saying, uh, I've grown up with comics, I read comics. That seriousness they applied to watching comics as continuity also applied to them paying attention to who the creators were. And if putting George Perez's name on a comic could sell it. And that becomes important as we move forward. Diamond Comics is also important because they come into existence as one of those distributors in the direct market we talked about earlier. Now, in the 80s, there were multiple distributors, but over time, they went away and Diamond became the monopoly for the comic book market, which was advantageous in some ways and a problem in others. Now, as we go into the 1990s, uh, those rock star creators we talked about, some of them decided that they did not want to be handing over the keys to the kingdom to Marvel and DC anymore. Uh, specifically, creators like Todd McFarlane and others at the time got together and said, you know, if I create a new character for Spider-Man who's a breakout character, and they start putting out shot glasses and tumblers and t-shirts and posters, I don't get a dime of any of that. I may be able to negotiate a good contract, but I don't get residuals, and I don't control it. I mean, if they put this character I made on, you know, jock straps for guys, and that offends me because I don't want my character next to guys' junk, I can't tell them no. So they created Image Comics and said, we are going to publish our own comics and retain our own rights. By the way, some creators were able to start going to DC and Marvel and negotiating contracts, including some intellectual control of their characters. Um, but that was pretty far and few in between. It was also the time period of extreme comics and mullets. Uh, I'm not going to talk about this a lot. It happened a lot. It was a painful stylistic period in comics. This character is supposed to be the inheritor of an ancient Egyptian mystical tradition, and he's carrying a bandolero of onks and sharpened into da uh, bleh, daggers. This is the iteration of Dr. Fate from the time period, and it is a time of shame and pain for superhero comics readers. It's also the age of collectible covers. This is a holograph cover from Superman Forever number one. This was a basic lesson in supply and demand. Now, something becomes collectible when far more people want to buy it than there are things available, of course. But the problem was the comics company successfully marketed these things as collectible. And so somebody says, well, if I can sell one of this later on for uh, 100% profit or 500% profit or 1,000% profit. Why not buy 20 of them and make more money? So the publishers went, sure, we'll print that many. So you had people buying tons of copies, publishers printing tons of copies, but there was nobody to actually buy all these things. And it wasn't just gimmicks like this. It was also, you know, say they did a new series of X-Force, they might have eight different covers of X-Force. And people were buying five of each cover in some cases. It was crazy. You can now buy these things super cheap. Big names rose and fell. Several companies came into existence. Uh, Milestone doing African-American comics. CrossGen, which was trying to create a whole new mythology. Several others. Uh, some of them were very ambitious and just either had bad business plans or were before their time. There was also a cyclical influence, like we talked about in the 50s. It hit again and comic book sales dipped pretty strong for a while. Uh, the extreme comics probably didn't help. But we also saw the growth of trade paperbacks in something called Vertigo. Vertigo was an adult imprint by DC, uh, not Comics Code approved. It's probably best known for Sandman by Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman is, of course, a huge name now. Uh, both the novels and a number of his books have been adopted adapted into successful movies and TV shows. In fact, the modern iteration of the Vertigo universe is called the Sandman universe. Uh, but they found during this time period that comics really didn't need to make money as comics. They could break even. And then they could be collected and trade paperbacks and sold in bookstores. People that didn't want to go to comic book stores, uh, especially girls, 
There were girls that wanted to read comics, and this shocked people. And they didn't want to deal with being stared at by guys in comic book stores who couldn't believe that a girl liked comics. Shocking! But that same girl could walk into a bookstore and not be treated like a freak and not stared at, and could pick up a trade paperback and easily read it. And we saw trade paperbacks being sold the moment the last issue was printed. In fact, in recent years, I have seen some trade paperbacks actually manage to come out before the last issue of their series printed. <laughs> so we saw a shift in the financials, and we also saw a shift in content. Uh, and this was largely because of a woman named Karen Berger, who we can talk about in depth at another point. Now, as we go into the 2000s, I'm going to go through this very quickly. Um, the code is gone. It's just dead. The a, a company that does comics for kids called Bongo broke with the code in 2010. Marvel, which had had a checkered history with it, was already gone. DC and Archie were the last ones, and they dumped it just a little after the 2000s in January 2011. Uh, and so it, it's doesn't exist anymore, no more employees, even if you wanted to get your stuff approved, you couldn't. It's also the time period when manga became a part of our vocabulary. Now, manga had been influencing Western comics through some of its iconic creations, like Lone Wolf and Cub, Akira, for a long time, but now suddenly you could go in bookstores and find rows of manga. Kids knew the word manga. Adults were learning it. Libraries were starting to have manga sections. And also, this movie called Iron Man came out. Now, comics had had representation in media for a long time. There had been a Wonder Woman TV series, Hulk TV series, there had been a number of movies. but And some of them were successful, certainly. But Iron Man was the first time that it felt like a comic book had really come to life without compromise. And it shot off uh, from Disney, both the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as well as Warner Brothers, wanting to really push the a DC, a DC cinematic universe and not the impact wasn't just a lot of money the impact also was that it brought a lot of fans to having interest in the comics because they already felt like they were reading them in a way by watching them and they wanted more and so we began seeing a feedback loop between the movies and the comics where the comics are having to mirror the movies at times while the movies are drawing heavily from the comics and as we get into the 2010s, uh, we see that thing that started with The Watchmen, where it's not they're not just being inspired by the history of comics anymore, but they're mining it for product. And we see things like Ultimate Spider-Man, where they're taking the history of Spider-Man and its iconic properties, Spider-Man as a mythology, and coalescing it, getting rid of all the little extra bits and pieces to make the most iconic form possible. And we also see comic books becoming woke. Here we have a comic uh, with a black Superman. This is not Clark Kent. It was a different person. Uh, and we also see the rise of characters like Miles Morales, Spider-Man. Now, I chose to picture here the black Superman instead of black Spider-Man because, A, it makes a good graphic with the dramatic shirt being torn open, which is an homage to a classic image of Superman, uh, Clark Kent tearing his shirt open to reveal the S. But also because there was recent news that they're doing a black Superman movie. Now, they don't have not said, is that using another version of Superman, or is that, that they're making Clark Kent black? Um, I am hoping that they do not make Clark Kent black. I'm hoping, I'm hoping it's a different version. I think that when we talk about representation in media, it's important that the characters be identifiable and iconic when they're representative, which is why, for example, Miles Morales is a black Latino. He has a black parent and a Latino parent. He's a Latino. I think that's a powerful image for kids to be able to read Superman, or sorry, Spider-Man, and say, I'm black or I'm Latino, I'm of color, I can see myself in him. When you just kind of shift a trait like race, it's not as intrinsic to the character. You're saying that this is morphable. And I don't think that makes it as relatable, because then you can't tie that character's background to that race as tightly. 
And I think that if you're going to improve representation, you know, that character has to be able to say, this is my background. I'm seen as a black man. My story is that of a black man as a superhero. And that's how you improve representation. But I do think you can have multiple Supermans. Uh, uh, there's a multiverse or multiple universes. Why not? In fact, in the Marvel Universe, we have one universe with Miles Morales and Peter Parker both in it. Which I think is great. Uh, in the 2010s, we also had it kind of slapped in our faces that a lie was being told about comics. And that lie is that manga was doing well because kids didn't want superheroes anymore. The single most successful manga ever in the U.S. And may, it, it, it is My Hero Academia, which is superheroes. So people have to start asking themselves, is there something else that kids are liking about manga that they don't like about the traditional Western superhero comics? And we're going to talk about that with your assignment in just a second. So what about what's happening in comics right now? Well, it's really too early to tell. Uh, we really need time to reflect on it. There are a few things I know we're going to be talking about in the future when we talk about the early 2020s. Uh, one of them is that the bookstore is rising. We're seeing trade paperbacks being valuable for being sold to the bookstore market again. And we're seeing not that the big chain bookstores are coming back, but the small independent ones are. And that may mean comic book stores also. And we also see the direct market collapsing. Uh, DC and Marvel have both left Diamond, and that whole market is shifting around dramatically. So in closing, I'm going to leave you with some assignments. First, what kind of graphic literature or comics do you prefer? Do you read manga? Do you read trade paperbacks? Do you read serialized comics from uh, American publishers? Uh, content form, where you buy it, whatever. What kind of reader are you? And why? See, when we talk about manga versus comics, I think some of, some of the decisions about how, for example, manga are published uh, affect readers substantially. You know, if you buy Attack on Titan, yes, the series runs on very long, but you know it's going to end. And it's a consistent vision of one storyteller all the way through. This is not true with Western comics. So drop all that below. Uh, I'm not sure how the podcast version is going to work of this yet, but there should be some sort of feedback form there. Uh, you can also get a hold of me on Twitter, at Rogan Hamby, and we will see you the next time on the next session when we're going to talk about mythology and comics and the incredible queerness of Wonder Woman. All right. Bye, folks.